What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Hey, this is Ty Butler with the Bloomberg Crypto Podcast team. Our week of episode favorites continues with one I have at the top of the power rankings. Here's my gift for you. Bloomberg opinion columnist Matt Levine and Bloomberg reporters Katie Greifeld and Vodana Hyrick. Last month, they tackled the blizzards of the crypto winter, hitting a crescendo when one of the single biggest names in the industry filed for bankruptcy. The FTX fallout left more questions than answers. The allegations against Sam Bankman-Fried have been costly to investors and creditors, and it remains to be seen how his alleged sins will shape the future of crypto. Enjoy and have a happy new year. on the podcast, we've attempted to unpack the spectacular downfall of one of the biggest crypto exchanges in the industry and how it's possibly changed the sector forever. A month ago, if someone would have told us FTX was potentially mismanaging customer funds, funneling money into its sister trading firm, Alameda Research, and would soon be the disgrace of the crypto industry, we wouldn't have believed them. As more details about its general finances emerge, we're starting to better understand how FTX and its former CEO, Sam Bankman-Fried, might have managed to change the industry forever. But how much of a mess was FTX in? How did nobody notice? And how can this shape the future of crypto? To make sense of what this could all mean, I'm joined by Bloomberg reporter Vildana Hyrick. When we speak to people, to crypto investors or whoever, traders, a lot of them are saying, oh, this is actually like a very scary moment for crypto. And we're going to interview Bloomberg opinion columnist Matt Levine. Classically, the way you get into the situation is like one trade goes wrong and you're like, we can make this up. And then it sort of snowballs from there. Hi, Matt. How you doing? I'm here, too. Oh, hey, Voltana, what are you doing there? (laughs) But we want to dive right in. And thank you, by the way, for being here. Thanks for having me. You are like the preeminent voice here on what's going on. I feel like everybody's He's already here. You don't have to flatter. Oh, sorry, sorry. I have to. I have to. I'm a big fan. But just to start, maybe you can just give us your take overall what and I know we've all been talking about this like nonstop, but from your point of view, what actually happened? Uh, I still don't know. I mean, like in rough senses, what happened is that FTX disclosed that it didn't have a lot of customer balances, and that's really bad. I mean, I guess what happened, first of all, is that customers withdrew a lot of money from FTX, and then FTX shut down withdrawals because it didn't have its customers' money. Um, but beyond that... The question of where did the customer's money go it still seems very much up in the air. The sort of rough sense is that FTX's affiliated hedge fund, Alameda, somehow lost that money. But what it did to lose that money is pretty unclear. There's talk of 
put a lot of money into venture investments, put a lot of money into rescuing, you know, busted crypto firms this summer in ways that might have lost some of that money. Um, but it's also, you know, it's a levered hedge fund and there are a lot of ways to lose money in running crypto. a levered position in crypto this year. So it could have lost money that way. And, you know, there are other more complicated speculations, but those are some guesses. So I've read everything that you've ever written. And uh, this so. past week, Me especially, too, you've written a lot on the balance sheet that was first reported by uh, the Financial Times over the weekend. I feel like you did a really beautiful takedown. The big numbers to know, I believe it was $9 billion in liabilities, like $900 million in actual liquid assets. Uh, and you pointed out that back when... I don't know, last week when we were so young, just talking about the FTT token, you made the point that it seems like some of their main assets were in a token that they made up. But what that reporting revealed by the Financial Times was that actually there's two Yeah, tokens. there's more than two. I mean, right. There's yeah. like, the balance sheet that we're talking about is something that FTX was circulating as it was sort of in its death throes trying to stave off bankruptcy by getting an investment. So I think that Loosely speaking, what happened is that there were customer withdrawals and everything that they had that was valuable, they sold or paid out to customers. So something like $5 billion worth of Bitcoin and dollars and whatever else went out the door. And what was left by the time they prepared that balance sheet was uh, was the weird stuff. Tell us about the weird stuff. I want to know about the weird so stuff. So there's a lot of weird stuff, including a position on Twitter that nobody quite, under, quite understands. Like, do they have a position in Elon Musk's Twitter? Question. Very unclear. But the bulk of the weird stuff is uh, basically these FTX-related tokens. So there's FTT, which is the utility token of FTX, which basically, it's not exactly stock in FTX, but it's kind of like stock in the FTX exchange, right? If you buy that token, they will buy it back out of, cash flow of FTX. So it's kind of like the stock of FTX. There's a token called Serum, which is the... the not face serum. Not or face hair serum. serum. Although... Or I'll, hair serum. It's, isn't that what Olaplex is? We're interrupting. I will tell you that Serum is run by a thing called the Serum Foundation. If you And if you Google Serum Foundation, it's all makeup. It's not at all <laughs> oh, I love the that. contents of the Serum Foundation. But um, uh, no, Serum is like the same thing. It's the, it's the token of uh, a thing a decentralized exchange protocol called Serum, which was started by, FT, you know, built by FTX and Alameda. And it was sort of like, you know, people want to trade on decentralized exchanges and FTX is a centralized exchange. And so this is like, it's like decentralized counterparts. So what that means is like, there's a Serum token, it trades a little, but it doesn't trade that much. And uh, they have like all of it. And they have this giant pile of it on their balance sheet that has more than all of the Serum in circulation. And there's a thing called MAPS, which is the token of a different thing called maps.me, which I will take no further questions about what maps.me does, but... Um, there was a third one, too. But, right? like, it, it, there's, like, $3 million of maps.me in circulation. I have no further questions And they had, like, $800 million of it on their balance sheet. So, like, way more than there is maps.me, and they were claiming that as, as an asset on the balance sheet. So if you add up all the assets and subtract all the liabilities, like, you get slightly more assets than liabilities. Mm -hmm. But then if you, like, poke those assets a little bit, they fall apart. Okay, can we poke at the assets? Because as Katie said, so everybody should go and, and read this first before they even listen to the rest of this interview because you did such a thorough breakdown of what exactly was on their balance sheet. So maybe can you just characterize for us, like, how bad of a balance sheet was it? Uh, 
Like in terms of like howling ghosts. Yeah. yeah. I said I said a series of metaphors about how bad I it have is them because in front it is of me, it is actually. not it is not like expressible in normal financial times. But no, I mean the balance like like I want to be a little sympathetic here because this is the balance sheet like after they got rid of all the good stuff. This is the balance sheet of stuff they couldn't give to their customers. And it's terrible stuff, but it's it's basic it's mostly tokens that um it's mostly a couple of things. It's tokens that they made up that there's no real market for. Like they trade, but if they were to sell billions of dollars worth of serum, they would get like, you know, kind of zero dollars for that. So like the billions of dollars is fake. Not fake, but it's like it's not achievable. So I actually have a quote from one of your recent columns. I love it so much. I'm gonna read it to oh, you. I love and to Phil Donna. Quote It's an Excel file full of the howling of ghosts and the shrieking of tortured souls. If you look too long at that spreadsheet, you will go insane. And that leads me neatly to my next question is what should the balance sheet of FTX or a company like FTX, what should it have looked like? Well, it's a little hard to know because like you have a simple model of the balance sheet, which is that like customers put in some Bitcoin or some dollars and you just hold them, right? And like you're in exchange, so you charge fees for trading, but you just hold the customer's stuff. And then when the customers want their stuff back, you just give it to them. FTX doesn't work that way because it is a... Um, it offers a number of products, but it offers a lot of futures. And so there's a lot of futures trading. So you're doing a lot of leveraging where you're sort of like effectively borrowing money to lend to customers. And you're doing a certain amount of borrowing from one customer to lend to another customer. So you can have kind of a messy balance sheet. But broadly speaking, you want to have like valuable stuff to offset your obligations to your customers. And there is just much less valuable stuff on this balance sheet than there are customer obligations. I want to talk more about Serum and some of the other stuff (laughs) that you found. Can you talk about the process of how you actually went through all of this and sort of the revelations as you went, you know, line by line or or whatever this process actually looked like? Because I also have a quote of yours that I'm going to read to you. I love this exercise. I love it. This is so fun. Who said this? (laughs) Seems bad, but it somehow keeps getting worse. And that's what you said. I believe it was in regards to Serum. And I love I love serum. I wish I had a metaphor for like there's like a vigorous skincare routine like, applied to this balance sheet. Yeah, um, like this this balance sheet needs some retinol. Am I right? Yes. Someone did actually email me to be like, you are react- you're overreacting to this balance sheet. This is a balance sheet with no makeup on it. Every oh, financial good. institution has like you know some mess Mascara. and they clean it up and like you see the cleaned up version and this is the sort of like no makeup version. And while that is true, like. Substantively, the mess is quite bad. Um, I don't know. I mean, like, candidly, what happened to me first was not that I read the balance sheet, but that I read the Financial Times article summarizing it. And they got to the point where they said it has $2.2 billion of serum and the market cap of serum is $88 million. And I thought, well, those are really bad numbers Mm. because the market cap is all of serum. And they have so much more than all of serum. They have many times all of serum. And so I tweeted that. And people were like, well, you know, the price went down. I'm like, no, the price didn't go down. There's like a deep conception. I mean, the price did go down, but not that much. Mm-hmm. There's a deep conceptual problem, which is that they have way more serum than there is serum. Because like you can, you know, you can do this like funny math where like you have a token and you issue 1% of it for money. And then you're like, 
1% of it was worth $10 million, so 100% of it was worth a billion dollars. But that's not really true. And the other issue with having so much of this one thing is that if they were to offload it, then it would actually push the price down, making their holdings worth even less, right? Yeah, but also, like, if they were to offload it, like, something's gone wrong. Mm -hmm. Like, Serum is a sort of FTX project. And FTX were like, we're dumping all of it today. It wouldn't go down by, like, you know, you wouldn't, like, calculate the effect of liquidity. You'd be like, well, now it's worth zero, right? So it's bad. So I want to talk about the fact that FTX, Binance, they're centralized exchanges. And a, a counterpoint that I've seen or narrative that I've seen on Twitter recently over the past week or so is that this is why, you know, you shouldn't trust centralized exchanges. And then as you point out in a column, it kind of feels like Binance wants to be a central bank. They have this like recovery fund. Yeah, uh, and by the way, like so did FTX, right? I yeah. mean, like this is this is like the the Binance recovery fund is First of all, it's it's, it's just a, it's just a tweet from CZ, right? Yeah. There's no like recovery <laughs> There's no fund, details. <laughs> um, but like even you know if you sort of like try to fill in the details for, with your best guess, it sort yeah. of ends up looking like what FTX was doing this summer. Yeah. Right? Well, I promise I'm getting to a question here because there's also been reporting that you've seen huge outflows from exchanges, like billions of dollars. So I guess I want to know if we make this a binary question, where do you see the crypto industry going towards this? central bank sort of route, putting more trust in exchanges such as Binance who are trying to fill this void? Or do you see a world sort of like a deglobalization, an actual decentralization, people taking their money off of exchanges, putting them on, in cold storage, wanting control of their keys? It feels like we're at that precipice, kind of. Yeah, I think it's really hard. I think that um, cold storage is like, it's not a it's like, like that's a solution for like, you know, institutions wanting to buy and hold Bitcoin. But like, there is this view that you're building this whole financial system, and that requires trading, right? It requires exchanges. Like a lot of the people in crypto are not, you know, buy and hold Bitcoin and forget about it. They're hedge fund guys. They mm -hmm. want to trade crypto, um, and it's hard to do that if you don't have any exchanges that you trust. I think people keep claiming victory for decentralized finance because it seems to not have some of these problems of charismatic founders losing all the money. Uh, but, you know, like the, the liquidity there is, remains a lot smaller than on central than on centralized exchanges. And I think, you know, the user experience of that for mm -hmm. either a retail customer or like, you know, the sort of like big institutional money that people want to bring into crypto is, is I think, you know, like, I don't know, you want to have an entity that you're facing. Yeah. So I think that's hard. And then I think like the central bank model I would have to think that most people trust Binance less now than they did two weeks ago, not because Binance did anything wrong, but because the person they trusted two weeks ago, they don't trust anymore, right? Yeah. Like, you, it's hard to be like, oh, like the savior centralized exchange went bust, so we'll pick a new savior centralized. It's just like, seems like yeah. a crazy thing to do. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think the central bank model, like, I think the best case is something like the central bank model, something like we're going to trust Binance and Coinbase and others, and we're going to do it in a vastly more regulated way hmm. where there's like some like adult supervision of all of this so that it's not CZ saying, I'm going to be the central bank, but it's like there's some sort of institutional framework in which it can be embedded. And I think that's also very far away and very hard to do. So I don't, I don't know. I don't have a good answer to your question. Like there's, 
a lot of bad options. It sounds like if I listen to your answer, though, that this just isn't the death of centralized exchanges. I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. One thing that's very weird is that it should be very easy to run a crypto exchange and not lose all your customers' money. That's what money. I keep saying. Like, and, and, you know, I've written about this, and I don't want to be too glib because, you know, the people I trust keep blowing up. But, like, Coinbase is a U.S. public company with an audited balance sheet that's pretty straightforward, right? Like, they take your money and they put it somewhere, and when you ask for it back, they give it back. And their business model is they charge you a lot of fees for trading, and you trade a lot, and so they make a lot of money, right? Like, that's oversimplifying in various ways. But it's, like, a pretty easy business, right? Um, at the Bloomberg Crypto Summit, I interviewed SPF and said, you know, we talked a little bit about, like, the analysis of these acquisitions, and he said something to the effect of, like, our thinking was if we could incinerate a relatively small amount of money, we would do it. And there's a lot of ways in which that makes sense, right? If you are the biggest player in crypto and you want the crypto ecosystem to be healthy, you would incinerate some money for the broader, like, longer-term purpose of keeping the ecosystem healthy. If you are a well-capitalized player, that is the time to deploy capital, either because you think there'll be a recovery and you'll make money on it, or even if you are really incinerating money, you're at least keeping the system healthier and, you know, improving your long-term cash flows. Mm -hmm. If you're not well-capitalized, though, which it seems like they were not, then it's a terrible decision. Um, And that seems to be part of the problem anyway, is they blew money on buying failed crypto firms that they didn't get back. Coming up, more with Bloomberg reporter Vildana Hyrick and Bloomberg opinion columnist Matt Levine on what the FTX fallout could mean for the future of crypto. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So that kind of leads me to a question I've been thinking about, and I think I've asked you this a few different times already this past few weeks, week, uh, to your point that if you were well capitalized, that's the thing to do. If you weren't, that's a terrible decision. When you think about just SBF, how we acted, what you 
the conversations that you've had with SBF, do you think that this was intentionally bad decisions, like intentional fraud, intentional evil, or do you think this was just hubris, someone who got over their skis? I don't know. I, 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 you know, I've said I, I've talked to SBF a few times. I've, I've liked, I've liked him personally. I would like to think the best of everyone. I think that um, it is hard to get into this sort of situation as like your plan because like, what's the next step of the plan, right? <laughs> like, like it doesn't like this doesn't seem to have worked out great for SBF. Mm-hmm. So, I just and just in general, like looking at a lot of these sort of situations you know, loosely speaking, um, the way you get into the situation is you get out of your skis. I mean, the way you get like classically, the way you get into the situation is like one trade goes wrong and you're like, we can make this up. And then it sort of snowballs from there to the point where you're sort of using all of your customer money. Um, I also think like looking at that, like one thing that you learn, like you notice looking at that balance sheet is that like the processes at FTX were maybe not great, mm-hmm. right? And like, there was certainly like part of their media image was that it was a very small firm that was very profitable with very few people, and all the people were sort of like the perception was they were all brilliant and like came from like you know Jane Street and like knew a lot about trading, but their you know accounting and compliance function seems to have been maybe less than you would want. And so one thing that SPF has tweeted and and the terrible balance sheet said was that there was a hidden, mislabeled $8 billion gap where they just, like, forgot about it. At some level, that's hard to believe, but also I believe it. Like, I mean, who among us? Right. Like, like, like something went wrong that had something to do with sloppiness in some form, right? And, and I don't know exactly what that was, but they do seem to have lost track of some of their money. Well, speaking of that, if I can quote you to you again, <laughs> you cannot apply ordinary arithmetic to numbers in a cell labeled hidden, poorly, internally labeled account, in all caps, of course. The result of adding or subtracting those numbers with ordinary numbers is not a number. It is prison. Do you want to talk more about that? Not really. <laughs> um, no, but look, I mean, clearly people are in legal jeopardy when they lose customer money. Yeah. In hidden, poorly labeled ways. What and, kind of And legal? like you could imagine that being a series of understandable mistakes and still being in a lot of legal trouble. What kind of legal trouble are we talking about? As I understand it, you're yeah, a lawyer. There's one main kind. Yeah. Go on. The U.S. Attorney's Office of the Southern District of New York mm. decides to um, prosecute you for wire fraud. That's the main kind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the biggie. That's the biggie. I think even with a series of innocent mistakes— the U.S. Attorney's Office will be very interested mm. and will not accept a series of innocent mistakes. Mm-hmm. But I also think, like, I don't know, you look at this evidence, like, your first thought is not a series of innocent mistakes. I'm not a lawyer, <laughs> but I do want to talk about the fact that SBF keeps tweeting. Yeah. This man is tweeting, He's tweeting. through it. Uh, He's it does some weird tweets, too, weird like tweets. letter by weird letter. Tweets, yeah. I know. It Trying to like spell something has... out a lot of time on his hands. It hasn't been going over too well on crypto Twitter. It seems like no one wants this man to be tweeting. Should I, he be tweeting? I don't think it's doing a lot for anything yeah. for him to be tweeting. So I know we've been talking about, like, we heard the word death of XYZ a lot. Katie and I actually on this podcast have been talking about how when we speak to to people, to crypto investors or whoever, traders, 
even not just like bystanders, that a lot of them are saying, oh, this is actually like a very scary moment for crypto. And we we have actually a story from one of our producers. We want to bring her in and have her share it with you. I think you will like this. I think this and get your take and get your take on on what's going on because she too has been talking to people about everything that's going on and how much of an issue it's been. Hi, Sharon. Hey, guys. <laughs> how are you? I'm not a reporter. I'm only a producer. I but mean, you, listen. I'm also not a reporter. Yeah, I'm, but you're Matt Levine. But this is the point, actually, of the story that you are Matt Levine. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah, so over the weekend, I went out and I, um, I I guess I should say that I'm within the age range where it's appropriate for me to hang around college seniors. And anyway, I... She's 35. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Um, And yeah, I just bumped into these two guys. And they seem to be kind of mumbling something about FTX and SBF. And I sort of approached them and I said, oh, what do you think about this whole FTX thing? And when I told them that I worked for Bloomberg and that I specifically worked within the crypto vertical on the crypto pod, their eyes were so wide and so lit. And they immediately asked me, do you work with Matt Levine? Do you know Matt Levine? And I said, well, I don't know him personally. But now you do. But now you do. Yeah. (laughs) But I've worked in the professional vicinity of Matt Levine. So it was really interesting to just kind of like see how they were so awestruck. I felt like I was like, t- I just told them that I like worked with President Barack Obama or like something to that effect. They didn't ask about Katie Greifeld? <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's all right. It's all right. No. Well, I did. I, to be honest, I did plug Crypto IRL. Oh, thanks. I just renamed this podcast to the Matt Levine Crypto Podcast. And just to pile Does on here. Does that mean I have to go on again? <laughs> yes. Because this is great. But. Wait, was that the story? No. The, <laughs> the point, we're still getting to the, to the crux of the story. Because they told you some interesting things about crypto and how they're viewing the state of the market. Yeah, I, I sort of asked them, like, so what do you think, like, is going to happen now, like, about crypto? And are you, like, really into the crypto world? And I mean, when you think about it, like they're 20, 22 year old college seniors, they're just starting to be like financially independent and they're really dipping their toes into like crypto verse, so to speak. And they seem to be really optimistic about the whole thing. Um, They did say they did acknowledge, you know, this whole FTX fallout is really disappointing. It happened. It was terrible. It caused a lot of pain. Uh, We can't disregard that. But they did also follow up with there's a lot of hope. And I don't think we should be, you know, in the position to say, let's give up on crypto. So they were really kind of like optimistic about the future of crypto and said, let's hold on because these are essentially like growing pains about what they think is going to be like a really game changing industry. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is not the first time that I mean, it's not even the biggest exchange, but like this is not the first time the biggest crypto exchange has gone down. Right. I mean, like this is a recurring story. It's a sad and embarrassing story. And it's, you know, I do think that people, you know, in 2022 would say that there is a, that crypto has been more institutionalized and like the days of the biggest exchange going down because it was hacked are over. Not that this one went down because it was hacked, but still. And this feels like a throwback to the bad old days. But, um, you know, in the bad old days, people were still bullish on crypto and they, you know, 
turned out to be right, right? I mean, like people who bought Bitcoin after Matt Gox collapsed did fine. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's a real step back for institutionalization. I think it is like, you know, your question earlier, like it's just hard to know like what the, what the just like future mechanical process is for like having a crypto trading ecosystem where like I think trust in centralized exchanges has gone way down. I think like the thing to replace that is either decentralized exchanges or like regulation. And I think neither of those are kind of ready for prime time. But I don't know if you're 22 and you like crypto, I suppose you can still be bullish on crypto. But I will say if you're 22 and you like crypto, there's a good chance you're like working at FTX right now because they're all like <laughs> children and uh, that's weird. What about if you're 35? kind of frustrates me. Like I know that they were like 28 to 30. They're not actual children. No, know? but I'm very old. And to, to oh, me, those stop people it. are children. He's 37. <laughs> exactly. Oh, it's fun to laugh. I'm almost 30 myself. I like to think that Maybe I wouldn't have come up with an $8 billion hole, but I don't know. Maybe I would have gotten over my skis in the exact same way. It's really easy to judge yeah. from the sidelines. You know, like one thing in financial markets is that people who are older have just seen more cycles and sort of like have a better sense of what can go wrong. I mean, in theory, right? That's not always true. But another thing is like no one's seen any cycles in crypto, right? Like everything in crypto is kind of happening for the first time. Like not entirely. There have been cycles, but mm -hmm. it's like, you know, it's kind of all happening for the first time. And so uh, on the one hand, that means that the young people are know just as much as the old people. We're all at the same anything. level. Yeah. On the other hand, it means that like a lot more things can go wrong, right? So. Yeah. Coming up, more with Bloomberg reporter Vildana Hyrick and Bloomberg opinion columnist Matt Levine. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Can I just say my whole family loves you? I know you know that. This is quite a podcast. Uh, this, I'm this, glad that your whole family loves you. Podcast. Loves me. That's that's really nice to hear. Um, um, I've I've 
how much are we sharing on this podcast? Like, Everything. I, 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 I know this in part because I talked to your dad on the phone. I know. On our way <laughs> to a crypto hangout last yeah, week. Yeah, I was whatever. there. Yeah. I was there. You were there too. Can we talk about the fact? I didn't talk to your dad on the phone. I remember it all too well. We no. can call him up now. <laughs> we can call him right now if you want. Um, can we talk about the fact that <laughs> we really did go podcast. to crypto drinks? <laughs> we did. Last Thursday, last before Thursday. the bankruptcy. But that was really remarkable. That felt like drinks at the end of the world. I don't know. It I was in a bunker. But. It was. It was in a cellar. It just felt Somewhere like... Somewhere in downtown Manhattan. It felt like everyone good was, spot to know. was stunned. I don't know. Yeah. Like a lot were, of blank faces. Yeah. <laughs> the end of the world. Much like they'll be when they listen to this podcast. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's sober up. Let's tie a bow on this. Matt, what is your best guess what crypto looks like down the road? Where do we go from here? What's the takeaway? I think it's really hard to know. I think that, you know, the original promise of crypto is sort of like getting away from trusting centralized institutions and putting your trust in like the code or the blockchain or decentralized exchanges or whatever. I think that what we've learned over the last year certainly is that people really want to trust in centralized institutions. That's just like more efficient. It's easier. It works. It's how you can have a functioning financial system. But over and over again this year, we've seen that that trust has been misplaced. Uh, so I don't know where we go from there. I mean, the way that all other centralized intermediaries work is some combination of transparency and regulation, right? And you could imagine something like that coming to crypto. I mean, it's bizarre that FTX didn't publish its balance sheets, right? Mm. Uh, and it is sort of reasonable that FTX tried to avoid U.S. regulation by being in the Bahamas because, you know, U.S. regulation of crypto is, is sort of not great. But um, but in hindsight, that looks, you know, terrible and, and the more regulated exchanges do a little better. Uh, so I think that part of the answer is like there are ways to make trusted intermediaries more trustworthy and you could do some of them. You could have transparency and regulation and sort of oversight and boards of directors and things like that. Um, but that's not the answer that everyone in crypto wants to hear, right? Mm. And I think this will continue to be a boon for people who want true decentralization. Some of that is, you know, decentralized exchange people and people in DeFi who say that centralized finance is bad and you should use DeFi where you can trust the code rather than intermediaries. Some of it will be Bitcoiners, right? Where like the Bitcoiners are like, all of this stuff here, this stuff is all just like the opposite of the point of crypto. And the point of crypto is just Bitcoin, hard money, no leverage, no trust in anyone. Just you and your keys. Just you and your keys. And that's like, you know, unsatisfying if you're on a hedge fund and you want to be like trading stuff all the time. But like, I don't know. Bitcoin comes out of this looking, I think, relatively good. This was the best thing that ever happened to me. I don't know about you, Vildana. This was pretty fun. The Matt Levine show? Yeah, this I've, was great. I've never heard a better hour of radio. <laughs> um, all right, great. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thank thanks. you, Matt. Thank you. You can find more of Vildana Heyrich and Matt Levine's work on the Bloomberg Terminal and on Bloomberg.com. For more, be sure to check out our twice-weekly newsletter, Bloomberg Crypto. This is Bloomberg Crypto, a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Send us your comments, questions, or suggestions for the show to crypto at Bloomberg.net. 
The supervising producer of Bloomberg Crypto is Vicky Vergolina. Our senior producer is Janet Babin. Our producers are Mohamed Farouk and Sharon Bariro. Our associate producers are Ty Butler and Moses Undam. Desta Wonderad is our engineer. Original music by Leo Sidron. I'm Stacey Marie Ishmael. We'll be back tomorrow. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.